Now, last week, I, I think we looked at probably one of the greatest passages in all the Bible on our responsibility to uh, the number one aspect of our Christian life after we get saved. And that is simply reproducing ourselves in others. Uh, taking what God has built into you and given you and then investing it into the lives of others. You know, you see this process in our own church here. Uh, you'll get discipled, maybe go through disciple one and disciple two. You'll want to disciple somebody. We'll take the two people who just discipled you or the person, whatever, and we'll put you into that group with them to go disciple somebody else and let you be part of that process of teaching it. And then once we get to that point, the next time, you know, you're basically on your own and you can take your own people and you can disciple some. That's the process. That's how everybody who is a discipler here or works with people here, that, that's basically how that they started. And, uh, you know, we talked about us being God's watchmen. How do we warn people about God's coming judgment? We looked at that out of the book of Ezekiel chapter 33. And it said back there that, that we are to see the hand of God or the judgment of God coming and we're to warn the people. And of course, for you and for me, that's telling people that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, and that they need to trust Christ as their own personal Savior. And, uh, you know, and it, the verse says, or the passage says there, if we don't do that, then the blood is on us. If we do that and they reject it, then it's on them. But we don't want to have the blood of other people on our hands because we did not tell them. Using all of our abilities to be the witness for God that, that we need to be. You know, in the Bible, John, we talked about this in John 15, 16. It said that, that uh, he's ordained you that you bear fruit and your fruit should remain. We talk about a watchman. There's two aspects to the watchman concept. The first one is a watchman at the time of somebody's salvation, Ezekiel 33. After that person gets saved, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says that we as Christians, we watch for the souls of the people who have gotten saved. Watch care, taking care of them after they get saved to make sure what took place in their life was real, what took place in their life was lasting. And that's really the key, and that's what we want to try to focus on. And we talked about the great concept of keeping our witness alive while we go through the adversities that, uh, that we're all going to face in life. And then we talked about the indifference of God's people today how that uh, they really don't care about the things they have. Christianity has been desensitized to the reality of somebody dying and going to hell. And we just live our lives oblivious to it. We do our own thing. Sure, we go to church. We got the Bible. Or we do all the kinds of things we're supposed to do. But that personal accountability, that personal responsibility, that recognizing that God saved you for a purpose, and that purpose was to reproduce yourself into uh, somebody else. And we talked about how special that you are here because you, you totally give yourself to that. And you allow God to use you. You know, Him taking all of you, not just, not just the part that you want to give Him, all of you, and using your gifts and together, you and me, bonding our hearts together uh, for a common cause of bringing men and women to Christ. Whatever, whatever that takes, as long as we do it biblically. I talked about Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, how that in that early church at Antioch, the Bible says that they, they ministered unto the Lord first. That's one of the greatest concepts that is unknown today. 
A lot of people want to minister. They want to get out and minister to people. But the real biblical ministry doesn't start with just you going out and sitting down with somebody and open up their Bible. It starts with you ministering to the Lord first. And then through that ministry to Him, God will take you and you will minister to others. And as I told you last week, there's four ways that you do that in the Bible. And uh, it's an incredible study unto itself. Now today... I want to look at another set of verses, and again, I want to see a credible concept about uh, you uh, and the Bible. Now, I, I need to tell you this. This is, this is going to be a rough message today. This is not going to be an easy message for some people to listen to. I'm sure that some of the things that I'm going to say today are going to really make people upset and mad. I'm okay with that. Uh, my goal, uh, you know, uh, many times we, we, we get accused by the ignorant people out there who haven't got a clue what's going on in the world that we are a cult and that I stand up here brainwashing you. They don't know how biblical they are in that statement. That Bible says by washing of regeneration. And I can say one thing about all of us this morning, right now, we all need our minds washed a little bit. So a little brainwashing won't hurt you this morning. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know that when you wash your clothes, <coughs> you put them in the washing machine and you put the soap in and all that stuff. But it, it doesn't get clean with just staying in there. You've got to push the buttons and then a guy shows up in your washing machine called an agitator. <laughs> and he beats the dirt out of you. Amen. And, you know, sometimes you have some really tough stains. So you've got to get that little body of, shout it out! I want to talk to you about one of the... Now, I got to tell you, I want to talk to you about, and I cannot impress on you enough, the absolute importance of the Word of God in your life. And the reason why this is going to be hard is because I can preach on most things and just, though I, I put passion in it because I love the Bible, and, uh, but there are some things that are just so personal to me. And when I start talking about the Bible the Word of God that God's given me, and you're going to see how the verses today exactly fits into this thing, it, 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 gets, it gets personal to me. Because I want to tell you something, and I can't speak for you, but I know that I would be in hell without the Bible that God gave me. I know that my life and my family, if it was left to me, it would just be an absolute disaster and an absolute mess. And I can honestly say the only good that you'll ever find in Bob Alexander, the only good that you'll ever find in anything in any of us is the goodness that God puts in us because Amen. of a book that God gave us. Amen. And I want you to know, I take that real personal. I, I can't speak for you. I wouldn't presume to speak for you. And if you're listening to this on the, on the YouTube this morning, I don't presume to speak for you. Maybe you care nothing about the Bible, but I do. I love the Word of God. It means everything to me. And I know, I don't always do what's right with it. I get that. But even when I don't do what's right with it, I know that I should, and I know it's still the book. And so what I'm going to talk about is something that's very personal today. You know, and I, again, cannot impress upon you enough the absolute importance of the Bible in your life. Now, this church, let me just give you a short introduction here. This church takes the stand that you as a child of God have the absolute very words of God. We believe that you have the word of God without any error in it. 
We believe that the Bible that you hold in your hands, and I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version. There's no mistake about it. Just don't beat around the bush and pretend I'm talking about all the Bibles out there. We believe that you have a Bible that has no mistranslations in it. Amen. We believe that you have a Bible that just came down from God, that God gave you exactly what He want you and me to have to change your life. Amen. We also believe that there will be no change in your life without that book. Amen. You can go to church all your life. You can hang out with good people all your life. If the Word of God doesn't get inside you and begin to perfect you, you're wasting your time. There's churches in this city today that after the services, they're going to have a wine testing contest. You ought to go to that one. That's where you ought to be. You have fun there. We put absolutely no confidence in the Greek or the Hebrew. I want you to know that. Absolutely no confidence at all. We put absolutely no confidence in Bible scholars when they go against the Word of God. We put absolutely no confidence in Bible colleges because we believe that the only institution ordained and authorized by God to teach you the Bible from the Bible is the local New Testament church. Amen. We're Bible believers. Amen. And that's what Bible believers are supposed to be. I don't know what you are, but we are Bible believers. Now, you like to call us a cult and call me a cult leader. I'm going to call you some things today. <laughs> because we're going to talk about something that's real personal. If I can keep my glasses on to see. I don't need them. I'll make this up as I go along if I have to. And I want to be clear about something. We are not some left-wing Missouri hillbilly group. We're not some left-wing radical group that is a cult with some off-the-wall teaching. To the contrary, we know our history. We know our roots. Now, maybe you don't know yours. That's your problem. What we believe was the standard teaching in Christianity from Acts chapter 12, 13 up to about 1900. We understand our heritage. And we make no apology for it. We know what we believe, we know what we believe officially, that from 400 A.D. to 1900, there was only two Bibles on this planet. And one of them was God's, and the other one was the devil's. Now, we know that from Genesis chapter 3.15. I'm not sure you must never read past Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible. I don't know how you missed that. In Genesis chapter 3.15, it clearly tells you that God has a seed, and the devil has a seed, and the Bible says that the seed is the Word of God. Now, you take it from there. Now, this message is going to be purely about the Bible. It's all going to be in the Bible. I'm not going to have got on the Internet to get somebody's ideas on it. I don't need their ideas on it. Their ideas are no better than my ideas. What we need in life, ladies and gentlemen, is no more ideas from somebody else. What you and I need is an absolute book with absolute truth, with an absolute standard that you can bet your soul on absolutely. And that's the book that I got. I told you it's going to get personal. Because when you attack the book, you're attacking my family. When you come after and attack the book that God gave me to save my soul, that gave me my family, save them, gave me this church and you and saved you, and you want to tell me that that book that God did, what he did in my life, and you want to tear it apart and criticize it, 
Come on, baby, we'll do it. As they say in the world, let's dance. <laughs> you like that? See that? You got to slide that foot like that, see? Hey, me and John Travolta are old buddies, man. <laughs> we know the difference between the Laodicean church period and the Philadelphian church period. We know that what we, and we have understanding that through history, there was only two churches. There was God's church and there was the devil's church. We know this from Revelation chapter 12 and 13. We know this from Revelation chapter 17 and 18. We know that there's two lines of Bibles down through history and there's two lines of churches. And we know that the devil's church and the devil's Bibles connected with the Roman Catholic Church. And we know that God's church and God's Bibles connected with the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 11 verse 12. We believe the same thing. We're called, we believe the exact same thing that the Waldensians believed in 1400. I believe the exact same thing that John Huss and the Hussites believed in Czechoslovakia in 1600. I believe what the Abigensians and the Huguenots and the Polyseans, all down through history, we're on the same page. I'm not sure where you're at this morning. And we know, we know the devil's plan. We know his plan is to get everybody into his church that he can. So he created a church that when you got in it, you couldn't marry somebody outside that church without being kicked out. Now, you had to sign a paper that your kids would be raised in that church or you'd be kicked out. They held you into that church because of the fact that your loved ones went to purgatory. And they controlled the exit and the access to purgatory. And when you gave money, they got out. When you didn't, they stayed in. And if you left their church, you got to bear the burden for the rest of your life that your mom and your dad or your aunt or your uncle is stuck in purgatory because you left the church. This church is propped up by the news media as the greatest institution the world has ever seen. This church is held up in the movies. Whenever there's a disaster, it's the Roman Catholic Father Shenanigans that shows up. <laughs> in The Exorcist, when you had to have a little girl whose head spit around and put up good green vomit, it was that church that saved the day. In all the war movies... In all the war movies, when, when it's out there, it's the father who shows up, the chaplain who does all these great things. It is held up. It doesn't matter that that church is the biggest bedrock of pedophiles the world has ever seen. Amen. It doesn't matter that in Philadelphia just a couple of weeks ago, for 70 years, over 1,000 people, young kids, were molested by this church. If that was a Baptist church, if that was a Bible-believing church, you'd never hear the end. Hey, Peter Ruckman, who never molested anybody, who all he did all his life is tell you about one book. You go to the website, there was over 100 pages against him. Nothing for this, guys. And you're okay with that. You're okay with that. And the devil knew that he wanted everybody in this church, so he protects it. But the devil knew that there would be some of you who would never go to his church. You'd never do that. So what he wanted to do in that case, he wanted to let you stay in your own church if you're just willing to use his Bible. 
And so we have most Baptist churches today, certainly all the neo-evangelical churches, they just dump God's Word. And I'm speaking to you. Yes, you. <laughs> You've dumped God's Word. Amen. Now, you're saying I'm talking, you know, and I'll tell you. I know people are going to put on the little comment, comments thing done to there. You know, and I read them and weep. <laughs> They're going to say, well, isn't he arrogant? I'm going to be a little arrogant today. Isn't he angry? Yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry with any pedophile who will take a little innocent child and exploit them for their own sexual desires. I'm angry at that. And if you don't get angry at that, then you got a problem. And I want to tell you something else, and you're going to love this. I put the Bible molesters in the same category. Because the purest thing on this planet is a little guy or a little gal. That some guy will take and take away that innocence and destroy that purity. And you're okay with that. People will create places for them to exist and, 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 and believe all the lies. Let me tell you something. If you're a pedophile, there is no cure for it. You're at the bottom of the rung of the most satanic thing. The only thing lower that is sex with dead people. Necromancing. In all of my years in the ministry, I have never seen anybody turning around. And I'm telling you, as far as I am concerned, you messing with some innocent little child and destroying their innocence and their perfect relationship that God would wanted to build on, I don't see any difference than you taking the most perfect book on this planet and putting your filthy little hands through it to destroy it. Well, you say, well, I think you're wrong in saying that. It's okay. You can come up and apologize to me after the service. <laughs> Read the works of Avril Manhattan sometime. And his plan was quite incredible. Job chapter 41, verse 13, and down around verse 15, talking about the devil, God says, who can discover the face of his garments? Talking about the devil. He says, I will not conceal his parts, his power, or his comely proportion. You know why the devil hates the book you got in your hand today? Because it's the only book on the planet that reveals who he is and his plan. Amen. And the reason why you're caught up in all of this today is because you got a different Bible that took the devil out of it, and you and the devil are buddies today. And you're standing in your pulpit this morning, God help you. You're standing in your pulpit this morning and your godless, perverted, cult, neo-evangelical church or your Baptist church that took Baptist off the name and you're standing there with a bunch of God people teaching them from the devil's Bible. Hallelujah. See that little shake there when I said that? Okay. You learn these things if you want to preach. Shake's important. Now, our verse today will show you what the Word of God will do for you. And I'm telling you right now, the most important aspect in your life after you get saved is to make sure you've got an absolute perfect Bible that will carry you through. Those of us having God's Word and believing it, 2, Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and having it work in you, 
because you feast on it. As the old song says, come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. And that feasting is with the Word of God. And when you do, it will bring three areas into your life that are absolutely invaluable to you in life and the ministry. The Bible will give you knowledge. The Bible will give you wisdom. And then the Bible will give you understanding. Understanding is seeing it, whatever it may be, from God's standpoint as it really is, not as it appears. Understanding is the key to every child of God's life that you get it. Seeing what is really important in life. Seeing every circumstance as it really is, not as it appears. Understanding is seeing something and understand why things are the way they are today. Understanding is looking at somebody's life and understanding why people do the things that they do today. Understanding is getting the inside track of life and knowing when God is in something and when God is not. Now, that was my introduction. It isn't getting any better from this point on. And today we're going to see how you get that understanding. So let's read our verses today and then let's go to work. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 13 and 14. My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward. And thy expectations shall not be cut off. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I, I thank you for the word of God that you've given us. And Lord, I will stand to the day I die proclaiming that you have given every man and every woman on this planet a perfect, absolute Bible that we can trust and bet our souls on. And Lord, I believe that with all of my heart. And Lord, I have a hard time with the spiritual pedophiles of Christianity taking this pure, unadulterated book that you have given to man and with their messy, fornicating, spiritually hands destroying the innocence and the purity of the greatest book the world has ever seen. And Lord, I'm mad today. I'm angry. This verse has set me off, and I'm not making any apologies for it. I'm going to tell them today what the truth is, Lord, because that's what you'd have me to do. And I want you to know that we love you. We love the book that you've given us. And we have grace, and we have kindness, and we have all of the things that we need. But when it comes to some idiot trampling on the very precious pages of the book that you saved my soul with, we're going to go to war. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in your Bible, and I'm sure you probably already know this, honey will be a picture of the Word of God. The honeycomb will be a picture of the Word of God. Bible says, as the Bible, it's sweet and pleasant to your taste. Psalms 81.16 talks about honey coming out of a rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 32, that rock is Christ. Verse 13 says, it's good to eat it because it's good for you. And if you want the best thing that you can ever do in your life to help you grow spiritually, you start feasting on the Word of God, the honeycomb. Proverbs 16, 24 says that pleasant words are as a honeycomb. And in Proverbs chapter 27 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, 
It says, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. But to every hungry soul, even the bitter things are sweet. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's a great principle. There's two ways you tell a real Christian. Two ways. I mean, they may say, well, I'm saved. That means nothing to me. There's two ways you know a real Christian. We preached about one of them already. The first way you know is, is how you stand in the day of adversity. And you know what the second one is? Your attitude of heart when a message comes down and just kicks your rear end all over the place. That Bible says the full soul, full, full of the world, full of education, full of everything the world has, and it loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul. Are you hungry this morning? Amen. No, no, no. Are you hungry this morning? Amen. Oh, Drake is, Drake is, and you are. Is anybody else hungry this morning? Yes, are, are you hungry this morning? Amen. Then even the bitter things should be sweet to you. I watch when I preach. I like to study faces. It proves that God has a sense of humor. But I like to watch faces when I preach. When I really get tearing it up, I watch some of you out there, big old smile on your face. You're taking it in. And because you love the honeycomb, even the bitter things I have to say are sweet. I see other people when you preach, boy, they just look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. I mean, they just, oh, they're just, they just shut the wall up and it's rock solid. And you think, I, you're saying, you ain't going to get through to me. Well, you're right. I won't get through to you, but the Holy Spirit of God is another matter. Yeah. Honey, picture of the Word of God. And when you love it, when it's everything to you, you don't mind the rough things that come your way. You know why? Because deep down inside, because you love the book and you know what is good for you, you know the preaching is exactly what you need. And the Bible says you're told to eat it. And verse 14 says that when you do, so shall knowledge and wisdom be unto thy soul when thou hast found it. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, that all scriptures is given by inspiration to God and is profitable. And when you put it inside you, it'll perfect you for the work of the ministry because it'll work inside you. Now, along with that, the Bible is also likened to light. Basically, when you eat the book, when you get the honey, apply it, it turns the lights on in your life. And the things that the darkness of this world was now hiding from you now become illuminated. Now, this is why so many of, so many of God's people today uh, cannot figure it out. They're in churches. Maybe they're even saved. But they're in a church that from the Bible they use, all that ever comes is darkness. And they never actually see the real light of truth about anything in life. They're given all these parameters of what the modern-day Laodicean church perceives Christianity to be. And because they have no light to see the difference, they come away thinking that's, that's what it is. Now, I'm going to show you today what happens when you just get a little bit of light. I want to talk to you today about some things. When you use the honeycomb, the Word of God, it will open your eyes and illuminate every situation that you're faced with. Now, in your Bible, there's a great story that illustrates this. 
It's just like the one last week on soul winning when I went back to Judges chapter 3 and I showed you Ehud and uh, Eglon. And I showed you that story in the Old Testament that was a perfect picture of what New Testament soul winning is, okay? This story will illustrate the two verses that I'm talking about that I just read for you today. And it's a story found in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14. This is where our story is found, and it's built around the life of a man whose name is Saul. Now, Saul himself is an incredible study. Doctrinally, Saul is one of the 18 types of the Antichrist. Inspirationally, taking the parallels of the nation of Israel as the congregation of God, and looking at an inspirational application into the church age of the congregation of God today, he's a picture of a modern-day pastor. He's a picture of what we have today, pastoring churches, bigger-in-life wannabes. Pastors who are part of this mega-church mindset. And I know when I start to say that, there are people out there that will say, well, he's just taking a cheap shot at the big churches because he doesn't have a big church. And I'll tell you something else, pal, I'll never have one. And I'll tell you something else that will help you. Let me broaden your horizons today because you're pretty stupid. Now, that's another thing I need to apologize for. And you need to help me with this. I don't like the word stupid. I've never called my kids stupid. I've never called my wife stupid. I've never called my friends stupid. I've never even called my dog stupid. I don't like the word stupid. But there is a time in dealing in situations where stupid is very appropriate. And I want you to help me this morning because when this is all done and I need to go confess this to the Lord and get it all taken care of. So I want you to count for me how many times I were to use the word stupid so I know where I'm at with this thing. So when I use the word stupid, you just, everybody yell out like I just said stupid. It's, that wasn't very good. No, one. We're still at one. Yeah, there we go. Because I, I, wanna, I want the record to be clear today. And, I, and, I, and I'll tell you. I mean, I've been around a little while. And this is round two of a megachurch syndrome. And you don't even know that. You don't even have a perspective of the megachurch concept, where it started, why it started, and actually, you're a latecomer to it. Those of us who understand history, because we have a little understanding, I know where the first round of megachurches came in. It was in the 1970s, in the 80s, in the 90s, with the Baptist churches. I grew up in that era. You probably wasn't even born yet. And you're probably some of these pastors out there that are thinking it's a mega church. They have no clue that they're just on a second verse, same as the first. Because in the 1970s and the 60s, really, and the 70s and the 80s, in the Baptist churches, it was the mega church syndrome. Jack Hiles, Hammond, Indiana, had a church of 10,000 people. Akron Baptist Temple had a church of 8,000 people. Canton Baptist Temple, my home church, Dr. Harold Henniger, 5,000 people. And the Baptist mindset was the bigger you build the church, 
more God, God is going to approve of it even more. And so the real megachurch concept started back then. There was a guy from Springfield, Missouri. He was associated with Baptist Bible College. His name was Elmer Towns. Elmer Towns was a guy who, who came up with the idea of writing a book. And the book that he wrote was The Ten Largest Sunday Schools in America. And for him, it was just a money-making gimmick. This guy couldn't put, he thought an apostle and epistle was a husband and wife. He didn't know nothing about the Bible. He thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. That's how dumb he was. That's how stupid he was. Good. Here's what he did. And I was a church that I was associated at at one time that actually won the award. He would travel around the country, come to the Sunday schools, and everybody said, Elmer Towns is coming. We all got to bring all your people. We want to be in his book. Bring all your folks. Bring your family. Bring your friends. Bring your enemies. Bring everybody. And he'd stand there, and Elmer would come up, and the pastor would say, we have 8,000 people here today. Well, Elmer would go around those things, and whoever had the biggest churches, <coughs> they got crowned as the fastest growing church in Missouri. And he put that picture in that book. And you'd, he'd, they'd get a, a big fish eye where somebody would be up in the baptismal, the people were all behind them, and there's the pastor and Elmer, you know, and, and, and everybody's saying, wow, look at that church. That's where the mega church started. He did that two or three years. And then about five or six years after that, he came out with a third book, and this book was called The Ten Most Beautiful Sanctuaries in America. He couldn't write another book on the ten most populated churches because all those churches were dying. Jack Hiles Church of 10,000, probably down to 1,500. You go to the Canton Baptist Temple that in the high day of Harold Henniger was running five, 6,000 people. You could call roll call in a phone booth this morning. Probably four. There's an auditorium that holds easily six, 7,000 people. 900 people in it. I mean, you could fire a shotgun in the thing and never hit anybody. They're all gone. They're all gone. You know why they're all gone? Because they're all built for the wrong purpose and the wrong reason. And now the Baptists are gone. There was a day when the Baptists hauled the mail. And now it's no longer. FedEx and UPS is doing the work. And what happened was, as the Baptists died off and their churches are dead, now the evangelicals come on. The neo, you know, the neo-evangelical, the non-denominational, the faith churches, the you know, church of the, the, the church of the of the, of the of the home being, or the church of this, the church of that. There's no denominational connected with it. They're just the church, faith church, grace church, happy church, hopeful church, no hope church, whatever. Because that's where it's went now, and now all the great preachers out there are back in round two of a megachurch mentality, don't even know there was a round one. And they actually think that God is impressed with great numbers. There was a pastor, uh, an evangelist uh, at that point, and he had one of the largest churches over there at about a hundred and something, and uh, uh, I can't wait over there. He had a family church or whatever the case may be. He had a mega church. They were coming from everywhere. I knew that kid, excuse me, I knew that clown when he was an evangelist. 
He was so important. He was so powerful and dynamic that he would not go to any church to preach if you couldn't guarantee him a crowd of 5,000 people. You know why? Because he was more valuable than that. Now, that's arrogancy. Now, let me ask you a question. How does a guy get to that point? And then read Acts chapter 8 when God shut down a whole revival in Samaria to send one evangelist, the key evangelist, to one guy in the desert. How does he get to that point? Let me tell you. He gets to that point. You tell me. Thank you. There's number three. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you read the Bible and see what God is doing and then you just walk away from it. Well, I'm going to show you. Saul does with Israel exactly what modern day and neo-evangelical and a few sprinkles of Baptists that still have the Baptist on their name have done. He brings, into the, he brings the world into what God clearly stated was not supposed to be part of the world. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul makes an alliance with the Philistines. Now, I don't know how he did that because God had just told him, stay away from the other nations. Have nothing to do with them. And who doesn't know that the Philistines were not Israel's enemies? How in the world does a man who's supposed to be the pastor of God's kingdom in the Old Testament justify making an alliance with the Philistines? And yes, it destroys the people of God. And today in Christianity, all your churches today, all the mega churches, they made an alliance with the world system. Churches by design from God are to be the foundation of truth to stand against the world, to be separated from it. We now have taken our churches and turned them into civic centers, health clubs, wine tasting contests. There's one church in Kansas City that, that based on the celebrity poker night, they set up 40, 50, maybe 200 poker tables in their gymnasium, and they have Baptist poker night. You tell me. Social drinking is now the order of the day. You tell me. There's pastors that stand in the pulpit and they will tell their congregation that it's okay to social drink. Do you know how hard that would be if you're a recovering alcoholic in that church listening to that? There's only one way that you get out of the world, ladies and gentlemen, and that doesn't mean that you become one with it. You abstain from it. You separate from it. And in the Bible, it's very clear that God says that you and I, once you get saved, we are sanctified, we are separated, we have nothing to do with the world anymore. There's a church in Kansas City that has discipleship. And after you go through two or three lessons of discipleship, they give you a psychological evaluation. Now, we have discipleship here, but I don't need to give you a psychological validation to find out your condition. You're all in a mess, so we've saved the time. This is where the church is at today. This is what the book of Colossians said in 2.8. When it said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. 
Our music in our churches is worldly. You close your eyes, you can't tell if you're in a halftime Super Bowl program or you're in a nightclub someplace. And it's just like Saul. Pastors have aligned themselves with the Philistines today. The world system. I get it. I get it. Their justification for it is, well, we want to reach people. Well, I want to reach people too. But I'll tell you something else. There's somebody that wanted to reach people much more than you and me, and his name was Jesus. And you'll never find one time, I know this is in the Bible, and I keep bringing the Bible back up because I know you have a problem with it. But this man named Jesus wanted people saved more than you and I did, and never one time did he ever deviate from the principles of the truth that he taught. He never said the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of okay. He never went along with the world system. He took an exact stand in opposite to the system in the day and let the chips fall where they may. I want you to get saved. But I don't want you to get saved to the point where I'm going to violate the principles of this pure book just so you'll do it. You want to get saved, you do it because it's the right thing. You don't want to enjoy your stay in a great resort called the Lake of Fire. And just like Saul, pastors today have aligned themselves with the world system. You could drive down the street. It'll solve a sign that says, Come to Rainbow Avenue Church of the Resurrection of the Holy Spirit and everybody else. (laughs) Nine o'clock, traditional service. That's to pacify the old folks in that church that don't like the new stuff. Then you'll have at 10 o'clock a contemporary service. That's for all you people that hate the Bible and hate preaching and just want to go and party to your puke. Then at 11 o'clock they'll have, and I love this, blended service. We're going to blend the two together. And I want to tell you, there's no greater experiencing with two Christians than blending. You know how it works. You can take avocados, peaches, apples, grapes, bananas, put them in that blender, turn the button on, and they all become one. Churches today have become the great blenders. I know, kid, I'm with you, 100%. Kid's the only one that's got any sense in this building today. Now, don't take my word for it. Let me show you 10 areas of Saul's ministry in the Bible. First of all, in 1 Samuel 13, 19, the Bible says that he, he put all the blacksmiths out of business in, in Israel that they couldn't make any swords anymore. You know, in the Bible, a sword's a type of the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4. He took the blacksmiths out of Israel who made their weapons, their swords, and then he allowed the Philistines to make their swords. The enemies of God. He gave them the contract. So the Philistines didn't make the swords and then attacked the nation of Israel who had no swords, and Israel had a problem. You know what the churches have done today? They've taken their church, their ministry in the Bible, given it to the Philistines. You don't have it anymore. That's what he did. In 13, uh, in 13.8, He's not a priest now, keep in mind. He's not a priest. And yet when the evening sacrifice comes and Samuel's late getting there, he forces himself to make the offering. For this, God kills him. 
And Saul was just like so many pastors today that he's pretending to be something that he's not. In 13.3, he liked to take credit for things that other people do. Jonathan won a great battle. Saul wasn't even at the battle. Uh, when Saul went before the people, he told them what a great job he had done in winning the battle. 14.45, he leaves his own son on the battlefield to be killed. The people have to go and rescue Jonathan because Saul is so busy ministering to the world that he allows his own son to be a casualty. Boy, do we not see that in Christianity today. Pastors that get up and want to tell you all the things about the Bible, but their own children are out in the world, or their own children are dead. In 1452, he's got mighty men of valor. But he has to force them to be his mighty men of valor. Where in 2 Samuel 23, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, David's guys were standing in line because they realized that he was a leader and a warrior. In 15.3, as a leader of God's people, he displays a total disregard for the final authority of the Word of God. God told him in 15, chapter 15, you get Amalek and you kill King Amalek and you destroy everything in his kingdom. Him, the animals, the people, you kill everybody. You got that, Saul? So Samuel comes down and he says, why didn't you do what God told you to do? Saul said, I did. He says, then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? He kept the sheep alive. You know what Saul does? He does you know what Pastor Saul does? He does the same thing all those pastors do. He gets the book, what God says, and then he just interprets the way he wants to to change it to fit his program. Amen. That's Saul. That's Pastor Saul. That's Dr. Saul. Amen. The seventh thing, his philosophy, his ministry, is that the end justifies the means. Whatever works, just as long as we can build a mega church. Number eight, everything will be about him. In 1424, he says, he says, he says, I brought this great, you're going to avenge my enemies. I brought this great victory. He didn't do anything. He's the, he's the unapproachable pastor. He's part of the Trinity. He floats in and preaches and floats out. You sit down there in awe. There he comes. Did you know that the pastor can't baptize anymore? No. Why, Myrtle? <laughs> he walks on water. <laughs> he's like 99% of the pastors out there today. He's spiritual and he's Christian. He's just not scriptural and biblical. He believes the fundamentals of the faith, but he discards the book that they're found in. He knows some things about the Bible, the milk toast of the Bible, but he has no clue when it comes to knowing the Bible. No doctrine. Now, allow me to read a story, this story for you in the Bible that will absolutely illustrate what I'm saying today on what these verses in Proverbs 24 are saying. And if you as a Christian or as a church uh, like this and you have a pastor like this, um, my advice to you is to get out of that thing as fast as you can. And I want to say to you one more time, 
I, and I want to say again that I cannot impress upon you the absolute importance of you having the Word of God in your life. The absolute perfect Word of God. Now let me read for you 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 19, and then we'll see how it all goes together. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise, uh, that the noise was in the host of the Philistines that went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thy hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan." Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul, excuse me, Pastor Saul, had adjured them, the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. Honey is the type of the word of God. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with an oath, Wherefore he put the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put a hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. I pray you how my eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey? How much more if happy the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found, for they had not been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Abidzon, and the people were very faint. Now, as I said, now what we have here is exactly what's going on in New Testament Christianity today. Pastor Saul and the church leaders who have been called to equip the people for the battle, the spiritual battle. Today, the very things that God has given them to give them strong strength to fight the battle, those are the very same things that they have taken from them. Verse 24 says, The men of Israel were distressed and the land uh, troubled. If there ever was a time when God's people were distressed and in trouble, it's the time that we live in. And the reason being, Pastor Saul, their leader, has put them under an oath not to eat anything, and yet... They're not to eat anything to give them strength, but they're supposed to go out and fight a horrendous battle with the Philistines. Now, number one, let me say this. There is no biblical context anywhere in the Scriptures for this oath. This is Saul ignoring all the rules of battle. This is Saul not looking back into the archives of the great wars that have been fought before him, that God gave them deliverance and seeing how to fight it. David never did that. David always operated with a battle plan that came out of the Word of God. He would have never put his people who had to go in a hard day-long battle and tell them for some spiritual reason, don't eat before you go. 
that I may be avenged. There is absolutely nothing in his leadership. There is absolutely nothing in his kingship. And there's absolutely nothing in your pastoring that has anything about concerning God. It's all about you. Look at what we have. Look at this great building. Look at all of this. Look at who I am. You look at verse 26. Now, when the people were coming to the wood, that's a woods, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now, as I said, honey is a type of the Word of God. And I want you to see that God supernaturally dropped the honey down to them in the wood because He knew what they needed. Just like God knew what you needed, and He brought the honeycomb right to where you're at. Aren't you glad you didn't have to wait for somebody to find us? Stupid. Dead Sea Scrolls to have your Bible. Somebody said, well, what do you think about the Dead Sea Scrolls? I think they were found in the Dead Sea. I think they were found in 1947. Well, what light did they shed on the Bible? If, you got, if God had to wait to 1947 to give you light on the Bible, we're in trouble. Amen. No, no, no. Amen. God's in trouble. You know, in the Bible, the Dead Sea is a picture of hell. So God hid his word in a place in the Bible that's likened to hell. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, it's going to get better than this. Hang on. He brought the honeycomb right to where they were. Hey, do you know why you have the Bible you got today? Now, I know you had to make a choice about it, but you know why you got it? You didn't get it from Bible college. You didn't get it. You got it because God brought it down and put it in the woods that you lived in. And you reached down your hand and you tasted it and you said, wow, that's great. But they they won't open the honeycomb of the word of God. They won't believe it. They won't eat it. Why? Because Pastor Saul told them it was no good. And they were defeated. They were distressed. They have no strength because they have no honey. Now, this will be an excellent time to turn off the tape. I'm giving you a fair warning. Now, I have to stop here for a moment, and I have to make a few comments. I've been around for a while. It never ceases to amaze me how gullible and stupid God's people can be when it comes to somebody taking your Bible from you. Do you not ever think for yourself? Somebody says, well, you go to Bob's church, he's a cult, and he just, he brainwashes you and tells you what to think. I will never tell you what to think. I would just be happy if you would start to think. That'll be enough for me. I mean, don't you know Revelation 3.11? It told you, I warned you, as, as a Christian, don't let somebody take your crown. 
Don't you know in Revelation 16, 15, it warns you not to let somebody take your garment at the judgment seat of Christ, that you keep your garment? I mean, when somebody tells you not to believe that you have the perfect, absolute, perfect Word of God in your hand. And I mean, you will hear that all the time by the Pastor Saul's of today. That the idea to believe that God could preserve His perfect Word in the King James 1611 is heresy, and you shouldn't believe that. Now, let me ask you a question, Pastor. Did God show you that? When you were in your devotions, you know, going through it, did the Holy Spirit of God put His arm around you and say, don't trust that book. You ever read the dedicatory in the beginning of the King James Bible? Most of them don't even have it in. It's always been amazing to me that in the dedicatory that the translators wrote before they put the Bible out, they, they, they warned about two people. The first one was the Roman Catholic Church, and they called the Pope the Antichrist. In your Bible, no, I wonder who this is. It was him, Popish person. And then the second crowd they clobbered was a Calvinist, the predestination crowd. And you know what's an amazing thing to me? The neo-evangelicals and what's left of the Baptists, the two things they all like to get into is the Bible out of Rome and predestination. It's no wonder they hate that book. How would, you hate, how would you like to have a Bible that every time you opened it, before you ever got to the Scriptures itself, it told you you were stupid? Yes. Stay with it. Give me just one verse that tells you that the original manuscripts are what God wanted you to follow. I just need one. Amen. Just give me one. There's 31,171 verses in a King James 6 and 11 Bible. There is not one verse anywhere, not one passage. There's 1,189 chapters, 66 books. There isn't one place in all of that Bible that ever even suggests that the original manuscripts were given to anybody to keep, read, or have. Who told you that? God did? Give me one verse that teaches that the scriptures were not inspired. And the original manuscripts were not scripture. And yet 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired and given by God. Who told you it wasn't? You have men who will tell you that the King James Bible has mistakes in it. Really? Did God show it to you? When you were studying your Bible, did God, through the Holy Spirit, come down and say, I, I, I screwed up that one. <laughs> I put that, that should have been someplace else. <laughs> did God do that for you? No, sir. Yes, sir. Did he say, well, that, that you know what? Okay, I, I didn't translate it right. You give him a better reading for me. Is that what he did? No. How stupid are you? Seven. I mean, come on. God came down and showed you his book and showed you mistakes in it so you could go around as a pastor Saul correcting God? 
Now, Pastor Saul corrected God all the time. God said, kill all the Amalekites, kill Agag, kill them all. And he just said, no, I'm going to reinterpret that because God doesn't really know what he means. So you're studying your Bible, Dr. Freud. You're studying your Bible, Dr. Shenanigans. You're studying your Bible, and you're a great Bible, Greek, Hebrew guy. And you get down there, and because of the mystical, magical Greek, God shows you where he screwed up and then wants you to fix it. Right? Right? I'm telling you, God's people never cease to amaze me. I thought they were smarter than this. You're told that, and how many times have I heard that? Well, he believes that the King James Bible is the Word of God in English, and the English language is the universal language of the world. You're telling me that the King James Bible, God only put his Bible in English? What about all the people that don't speak English? Well, you're telling it's in Greek and Hebrew. I guarantee there's a lot more people in this world that speak English than they do Greek and Hebrew. In a world of 7 billion people, I guarantee you there isn't 100,000 men and women who can fluently speak Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible. So what you're saying is God gave you a Bible. Now, hang on here. What you're saying is God gave us a Bible. You've got to understand Greek and Hebrew to real, get it. You're never going to master those two languages in your life. So God is going to hold you accountable someday for a book he gave you that the two languages that aren't even alive today you had to learn. Are you kidding me? Where in the Word of God did you ever read that God could bring His Son into the world through a sinner, Mary, through an absolute apostate tribe, Judah, and He brought Him through a sinner and brought Him through an apostate tribe, Judah, and yet kept Him sinless and perfect. But He couldn't bring His Bible through the hands of history through men who were sinners and keep it perfect too? How stupid are you? You can quit counting if you want. I don't want you to, but I ain't repenting. <laughs> you spent too much time with the souls of life. Your pastor is Pastor Saul. This man, you've been spending time with men who have been educated outside the simplicity of the Word of God. See 2 Corinthians 11.3 and read the devil's work in it. I mean, please. One more time. Allow me to insult your lack of intelligence just a touch more. Now, we're going to help me here. If you're saved here this morning, say amen. amen. Is that salvation a perfect salvation? Amen. No. Are you sure? Because it didn't sound like it when I asked that first time. If you're saved, is your salvation perfect? Amen. You got that salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. Was he a perfect Savior? No, no. Was he a perfect Savior? Yeah. So you have a perfect salvation? Yeah. He saved your soul, and he separated you from the flesh, and he sealed it in the day of redemption. So now is your soul perfect? Amen. Is your soul perfect? Yeah. As my drill sergeant used to say, you people, I can't hear you. Is your soul perfect? Yeah. And you got it from a perfect Savior? Yeah. And he gave you a perfect salvation? Amen. Does he have a plan for your life? Yes, in his mind, is it not a perfect plan? Yes, Did he plan for you to get into sin? No, 
Did he plan for you to get off the beaten path? No. His plan was perfect. His plan was perfect. Amen. Does he not want to walk with you through life? Amen. Does he want to? I mean, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Amen. Is it going to be a perfect walk as far as he's concerned? No. Will he walk with you into, into bars? No. Will he walk with you into places you shouldn't be? <laughs> So, hey, what you're telling me is this. You got a perfect Savior that gave you a perfect salvation, that saved your perfect soul, that has a perfect plan, that has a perfect walk, and we forgot, is eternity not going to be perfect? So we got a perfect Savior, perfect salvation, perfect soul, perfect plan, perfect walk, perfect eternity, but an imperfect Bible. I mean, come on, how stupid are you? I mean, let me ask you a question, sir. At birth, how long were you without oxygen? <laughs> to think God could inspire something. Oh, praise the God! But then God failed to preserve it. I was watching Joe Olstein this morning when I was getting ready. He starts out with a joke, which is a lot better than his sermons. And then he says, okay, hold up your Bible. And they all quote the little, hey, you know what? They're all waving their Bible. I want to tell you something. Him, his dead daddy, his wife, his kids, his brothers, and everybody in that church doesn't believe for 10 seconds that what they're waving is the true word of God. They're as dumb as the rest of them are. Now look at verse 27 here. Here we go. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb, and he put it to his mouth. And his eyes were enlightened. That's what the Bible will do for you. When you eat it, when you digest it, it will open your eyes to everything that's fake and phony, i.e., in the Old Testament, Saul, today, your pastor and your church. Now, the only question remaining here is about you. Are you fake or are you phony? Or will you let the Word of God do the work it wants to do in you by believing it? Now, look at verse 28. Then answered one of the people. Oh, I can just see it. He was probably a deacon. I bet he was a Sunday school teacher. I bet he was a administrator. Then I'm going to say it just like these little wimpy guys would talk. Then answered one of, then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath. Pastor Saul, your father, he, he straightly charged the people saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Let me translate that for you. What are you doing with that old archaic Bible? With all the these and the thous in it. Nobody talks like that anymore. 
I mean, why? You heard what Pastor Saul said. You've got to get an NIV. The nutty insane version. You've got to get the ASV. Get a new King James Bible version. All the new Bibles are the closest to the originals. Didn't you hear Pastor Saul say, don't eat the honey? Don't eat any food? Why, didn't you hear what he said last week in the sermon? When he talked about the, the best Bible to have is a NIV or a New Living Translation or a new one called the Message or a King James Bible? Why, don't you know that he... He's over and over again, he, he, he's told us that you don't want to read that old King James Bible. There's so many mistakes in it. Cults believe that. You know why you fall for stuff like that? You know why you fall for stuff like that? Because you're in the biggest cult the world has ever thing, and you're stupid. And you got Saul for your big time pastor. Now watch what the Bible will do for you. Our text says, My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul when thou hast found it. And then shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Now, now watch what a, what, what a little taste of honey will, will do for you. Verse 29. Jonathan gets a little honey. Kind of like you. That's your little honey over there. <laughs> Everybody needs a little honey. <laughs> I'm mad still. Don't take it for granted because I'm making you laugh. Then said Jonathan, my father had troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. Now, do you know what my problem is? I'll be honest with you. You know what my problem is? <laughs> Guy asked me one time, he says, I get this a lot. He says, I listened to your tapes or your YouTube thing. He says, you seem to be very angry. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not angry about anything. I'm just real passionate about things. And I'm just be honest with you. You know, I mean, when you love something, you get passionate about it. Amen. I mean, there's guys out there that love baseball and softball. I mean, uh, when you come up to bat, do you just... No, you're into that thing. I know you're, 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 well, I don't know what this does. <laughs> you knocked that thing out of there. I guarantee you, when that little guy caught that ball or fumbled the ball, did he just get up and go? <laughs> he, you ran with everything you had. I would have given anything in the world to see you run that 80 yards. I'm telling you, you got, you, you, you're passionate. Uh, you go to the Chiefs game. How about that quarterback we got? 69-yard pass. Get your thumbs down. You're, stu you're stupid. 69-yard pass. Did you see that? 
And the crowd went. Yeah, the crowd went. They went nuts. They're passionate. I'm sitting there in Chief Stadium. Boy, you're all angry. What are you angry about? Ma'am, you've you're been screaming up and down and yelling for a while. Are you angry at somebody? The passionate. Do you want a pastor who isn't passionate about some things? You want me to be a lame duck up here, a limp noodle that just says, okay, here we go. Let's have fun today with the Bible. Kumbaya, my Lord. Everybody hold hands. Is that what you want? I'll give it to you. And by the way, you say, are you angry? I'll show you angry if you want me to show you angry. I'm not angry about anything. I'm the happiest guy on the planet. I just hate Bible perverts. Now, I'll preach against them. I hate Bible pedophiles. You see, I got a little honey, and my eyes were opened. And it showed me exactly where the problem was. And old Jonathan got a little bit of honey and said, Whoa! That's not the people's problem. It's Pastor Saul's problem. He has troubled the church. He has distressed the people because he won't let them eat the honey. Now, when I saw where the problem of this God-forsaken Christianity that, that proclaims to love God yet hates His Word, I saw a moment. It's with you, Pastor Saul. It's with you, Deacon Saul. It's with you, Sunday school teacher Saul. It's you, Elder Saul. It's you who have absolutely a disdain for the fact that you and me as a common man, God would bring us the honeycomb. And when we dipped our fingers and just got a little bit of it, opened your eyes. You know how you get saved when you're in the blindness of, of darkness of this old world? You come to a service like this. The Holy Spirit of God just gives you a little honey about your soul and he lets you see it. Your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God is the God of your education. And you and you alone have greatly distressed God's people. You have troubled them and made them faint by telling them that the honey was of no value and was full of errors. Now, this is the state of New Testament Christianity in the neo-evangelical crowd and the Baptist churches for the most part. The Baptists once had it going, now they've lost it, now the evangelicals, and it's just the second round of round two of the mega church is really of God. And you're so stupid you believe that. It's simply the lessons of history being repeated, and because we have no understanding and can't see it, we've failed to repeat the same lessons of history. Now look at 2414. So shall knowledge of wisdom. Did you catch that? No, he didn't say knowledge and wisdom. He said the knowledge of wisdom. You better spend about a day and a half figuring out what that means. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul when thou hast found it. So shall the knowledge of wisdom. That simply means that the knowledge of how God uses wisdom. The knowledge of wisdom. It isn't about just having wisdom. It's about understanding how God uses his wisdom. And by the way, that phrase is not found in an NIV. It's taken out. 
Somebody didn't want you to get the knowledge of wisdom. There shall be a reward. <clears throat> and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Now when you get the book, the right one, it will lead to a reward. And that reward will be found at the judgment seat of Christ and all that God has for you. And associated with that will be five crowns that are listed for you in the Bible. And you were warned, as I said, that no man was to take those crowns over there in Revelation 3.11. And you're warned in 2 John verse 8 that you need to receive a full reward if you possibly can. Now, for me, it's very clear. Everything comes back to the Bible. And I know what I'm about to say. Frost a lot of God's people, but that's the business I'm in. I believe the Bible. I'm a Bible believer. And I believe that whatever you do in the Christian life, no matter how many big churches you build, no matter how many people you win to Christ, I believe, I believe that if you do it with the devil's Bible instead of God's Bible, at the judgment seat of Christ, you've lost it all. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how sweet you are. I don't care what a good person you are. I don't care how you lived your life devoted to God all your life in your own mind. Let me tell you something. At the judgment seat of Christ, you come down to one thing, God's mind versus your mind. And you're actually going to tell me you're actually going to tell me that once we conclude that every other Bible out there is the devil's Bible coming out of Rome, which we don't have time to get into today, which can be proven by going to any public library in any city in America, once you come to that point where you realize that the other Bibles are the devil's Bible, you're actually going to try to get me to believe that God is going to, the judgment seat of Christ, is going to give you rewards for what you've done, service for him with the devil's Bible. Is that what you're telling me? That in this life, the blessings of God, God will go ahead and bless you even though you've got the devil's Bible that you're using and you don't want to carry anything about it and you spend your whole life telling other people that God's true word is not right. That's what you're telling me? You see, you don't understand the difference between the blessings of God in the Philadelphian church age and the blessings of what you think is of God in this disease-stricken vineyard called Christianity today, which is an absolute apostate mess. You don't have a clue. No, I know, I know. You know, I get it. And I'm telling you, there is rewards. And you can say all day long, and boy, I've heard it. Well, you know, I don't know how you can say that. I mean, you got this guy. He served his whole life uh, serving God. And, you know, he never, he did everything right. He was a good Christian guy. And we actually talk like, like, like that means something. What good is it how good you are if at the end of the day, the book you have, you don't believe? When well, a great evangelist died here a while back, his son got up and was eulogizing him, which, praise the Lord, and he got up and he says, I want you to know that my dad, my dad run the race. Quoting out of the Bible. And I want to tell you something. I'm just telling you. In my personal belief and understanding, and I'm not going to get into all the details, even tell you to it is. And this guy, for 50-some for years, 60-some years, uh, preached revivals. And I'm telling you, the last 40 years of his ministry, I'm telling you something. Uh, he, when he gets to the judgment seat of Christ, he ain't going to have a thing. You know why? You say, well, I don't know how you can say that. It's called the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Thank you. 2 Timothy 2.5. Read it and weep, they say when we used to play cards. <laughs> if any man also strive for the mastery, ran the race, did he? If any man strive for the mastery, yet he is not crowned. Why? Except he strive lawfully. 
You got to do it by the book. You don't get a nice smile and a nice Christian attitude and talk about the love of Jesus and then get rewards that way. If you're going to, listen kid, if you're going to run this race, you're going to have to do it by the book. You're going to have to strive lawfully. There's some things you can do and the things you can't do. There's some people that you're going to be nice to and there's some people you're going to have to take a stand against. And you can never let the world come into your life. Nor can you ever let somebody, Dr. Saul, come in because the most important possession you got after you're saved is the Bible on your lap this morning. Then verse 14, and I'm done. Thy expectations shall not be cut off. There's a story called King Midas. Everybody knows the story. It's a Bible story. You just don't know it's a Bible story. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of God, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor stood in the seats of scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and it is the law of him at a day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that, that bring forth his fruit in his seed. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know what that's called? That's called the Christian Midas touch. Gold in the Bible is the first thing that needs to be on the foundation the day you got saved. Gold, silver, precious stones. And in our story about King Midas, he loved gold. And he loved gold so much that he, he, he wanted to be, be able to touch whatever he touched would turn to gold so his life could be filled with gold. So he got that wish. And he'd go through his kingdom and turn it into gold. Oh, wow. He'd go over here and he'd touch this and gold. He'd walk over here and say, man, everything I touch is gold. He touched that. And, of course, the, it's a kind of a worldly spin on it because the next thing you know what happens, his kids come running down the thing and, hi, daddy, hi, daddy. He puts his arm around him. He turned into gold. So he found out in the story, which is a nursery rhyme type thing, that just because you want everything to be gold and you have the golden touch that turns everything to gold, there's some things that if you gold, greed for gold is so much, it'll ruin your life. Now that's the story and I get that. But for a Christian... You want to touch your kids and have them turn to gold. You want everything in your life to turn to gold because that's the first thing you lay on the foundation of the judgment seat of Christ. You want to go through life as a husband and wife and a family, as a young single, as a young teenager. You want to go through life not having your expectations fail. Just get the right book. Just love it, live it, digest it, eat it, taste the honey, Take the honey, it'll give you every expectation of your life. God will give you the desires of your heart when there are the desires of his heart. I'm telling you. And I leave you with this final thought. The greatest, greatest possession you have this morning, if you're saved, the greatest possession you have is that Bible that God gave you. It is the honey to your soul. It is the honey out of the rock. It is perfect. It is without error. And don't you ever let the Dr. Sauls of this life, the big-time wannabes, don't you ever let them take from you the greatest book that God ever gave you because when you do, you too will lose your spiritual insight and you too will be distressed and your life will be troubled because it's the book that keeps the enlightenment of what we see. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus and we do love you. Thank you for the word of God that you have given us. Pray your blessings upon our time today. May someone out there just see and understand. If just one person would get and understand that they have got the greatest book the world has ever seen. And it's no wonder that the devil wants to take it from them. 
And he uses the souls of this life to take it from us. And we as God's people, we, we fall into that trap. We, we, we believe that these men are godly men, that they're men that God is leading, when in reality, they're a long way from what the plain teaching of the Bible says. Lord, all I did today, all I did was just go to a perfect book to preach a perfect message about a perfect life with a honeycomb. Take it, use it, and may God have the honor and glory out of it, and may each man and woman here, each family, each single, each teenager, may they fulfill the expectation and get that full reward. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.